Chapter 18, Part 1 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 2 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18, Part 1 The Personality of Clara Barton. At the beginning of her public career, Clara Barton was short of stature and slender as she was short. Her form rounded out in middle life, but she never exhibited any approach to stoutness. She was so well proportioned as to give the impression of being taller than she was. When she spoke in public, if she stood beside a presiding officer, it was seen that she was small of stature, but when she stood alone she gave the impression of being, as was often described as being, above medium height. Her maximum height, attained in adolescence, was five feet two inches in moderately high-heeled shoes. The author measured her in her later years, and she was exactly five feet tall without her shoes. Her carriage was erect, except for a slight stoop in the shoulders. There never came any sag in her person, any letting down of her erect standing. Her spine below the shoulders was carried to the end of her life as erect as in youth. As she stood or sat, she never had the bearing of an old person. When seated, she commonly kept her back well away from the back of the chair, depending on nothing external to assist her in maintaining her erect bearing. She walked quietly, deliberately, and flat-footedly. She put her whole foot down at once. There was a certain firmness in her gait which indicated strength of character and resolute purpose. She did not dart or rush or drift or flutter. She walked, and her walk was of moderate speed and of marked decision. Her hair was brown, and in her younger days she had great wealth of it. She took good care of it, and, while there was less of it in her later years, it retained its fine texture, its soft silky wave, and its rich brown color. The writer asked her once if she had a single gray hair. She replied that she thought she had one, but had forgotten just where it was. Her eyes were brown, and in some lights appeared black. I find at least one description of her as she appeared on the lecture platform, in which she was described as tall, with hair and eyes black as the raven's wing. The reporter is not to be blamed for his departure from truth. She looked tall when she stood alone, and her eyes and hair appeared as he described them when seen in some lights. Her features were regular. Her nose was prominent and straight. Her mouth was large and very expressive. Her features were remarkably mobile. Her forehead was both high and wide and in her middle life she wore her hair so that its full breadth and height appeared beneath the graceful parting of the hair in her later years her hair was combed down over the temples on either side and remained parted in the middle 
Her chin was a very firm chin. It did not protrude, neither did it recede. There was not the slightest suggestion of a lantern jaw, but there was a clear-cut prominence of the chin that suggested a firm decision and a tenacious purpose. She said to the writer, Every true Barton knows how to possess an open mind and teachable disposition with a firmness that can be obstinate if necessary, and no one can be more obstinate than a Barton. Obstinate she certainly could be, but she was reasonable to a marked degree. No one who saw her shut her mouth when she had made a decision could cherish any doubt of her tenacity of purpose and her chin was anything but a weak one she did not stare but she had a habit of fixing her eyes upon an object or a person which did not put arrogance or pretense at ease she could on occasion look through a person as if she discerned his inmost thoughts but ordinarily her look into one's face was gentle and companionable and sympathetic Clara Barton affected none of the arts by which women advanced in years attempt to appear young. On the other hand, she had no intention of growing old. She said to me that she did not see why people should be so curious about anyone's age. What did it matter? So far as she was concerned, there was no secret about it. But when people had learned the date of her birth— how could they know whether she was old or young? She did not greatly like to be asked for her latest photograph. The photograph which she liked best, the one which she had framed and which the author has just as it stood on her desk, was the familiar Civil War portrait. On December thirtieth, 1910, she wrote in her diary, concerning her friend Julia Ward Howe, whose death she mourned, and whose biography she had read through with keen interest. I notice a strife over the placing of Mrs. Howe's portrait in Fannell Hall. The art committee object to it, but the people demand that it be placed there. No reasons on the part of the art committee are yet given, the painting is by Mr. Elliot, husband of Maud. I wonder at the idea of people having their pictures taken after time and age have robbed them of all their characteristic features. I regard this as a mistake. I want the last picture of the friends I love to show them in their strength and at their best. Mrs. Howe's picture, as now painted, would have shocked even herself in strong middle life. Why not show the world the writer of the Battle Hymn of the Republic as she was when she wrote it? Is it the rush of the curious for the latest photo? I think the idea wrong. I wish the art committee would insist on a picture of Mrs. Howe at the age of forty years. When Clara Barton was in her eighties, she often, as was her custom, would sit upon the floor, a la Turk, with her work spread around her. When her work was finished, she would rise with the suppleness of a girl 
without touching her hands to the floor. She had an almost morbid shrinking from the infliction of pain or from the taking of life. She was not strictly a vegetarian. If she was at another's table and meat was offered her, she ate it sparingly. She carried through life a pulse ten beats slower to the minute than that of an ordinary woman of her years, but her pulse beat steadily and reliably. A half cup of coffee stimulated her almost to the point of intoxication, and a child's dose of medicine was too much for her. So simply did she live that when she died at the age of ninety-one, there was not a physical lesion, not a diseased organ in her body. Her physician, who for thirty years had been her almost daily companion, Dr. J. B. Hubble, declared that, barring accident or some acute attack, such as that which actually caused her death, she could easily have lived to be one hundred years of age and still not have been technically old. There was nothing about her voice or manner that suggested a really aged person. Senility was farther removed from her at ninety than from most women at sixty. A California octogenarian was compiling a book of personal testimonies by aged people and wrote to her asking for the secret of her long life. Her answer was contained in four words low fare, hard work. If to this she had added anything, it should have been a self-forgetful purpose, a serene spirit, and an upholding faith. From her father, Clara Barton inherited a spirit of broad philanthropy and wide human interest. From her mother, she inherited a warm heart and a very hot temper. It was this temper that gave her self-control. She kept it perfectly under her bidding, and that lowered voice was the sign of mighty resolution and smoldering passion under the control of a conquering will. Clara Barton was a lifelong believer in woman's suffrage. She was a close friend and a warm admirer of Susan B. Anthony and shared her aims and hopes for her sex. She believed in women receiving the same wages as men for the same work. She was never as militant an advocate of the rights of women as Miss Anthony, however. Temperamentally, she was of quite another disposition. In her later years, she saw with marked disapproval what she regarded as the unwomanly efforts of women to advance their cause. This, she believed, hurt the cause more than it helped it, and whether it helped or hurt, she did not like it. A lady who was about to undertake a long journey by rail spoke to Clara Barton of her dread of it. Railway travel, she said, always tired her out and made her sick. Miss Barton said, travel rests me. Her friend asked her how she managed it. She replied, I delegate to the conductor and the engineer the full responsibility for the running of the train. 
I do not overeat, nor take with me candy or other needless food to upset my digestion just when I am getting less than my usual exercise. I carry with me a book and a notebook. When I think of something that I want to remember, I jot it down. When I see something that interests me, I make note of it. I read as long as I enjoy reading, and when I grow tired of that, I close my eyes and rest and let the train go on. Her friend replied, That all sounds very simple. I will try it. She returned from her journey, reporting that she had had a delightful time and that she had alighted from the train at each end of the trip less weary than when she started. The directions which Clara Barton gave were those which she herself had tested. Clara Barton lived long, and her life had many changes. Account has been given of certain episodes in her young womanhood in which she was loved and did not return the affection of the men who loved her. The question has been asked, and should be answered, whether in her later years she had any experience which made up for the lack of love in her youth. Some stories, nearly or quite apocryphal, have been told concerning the men who are supposed to have loved her and whom she loved, but whom she refused because she loved her work more. The lovers of her youth were all good, worthy men, as good as the average New Englander. There is nothing to be said concerning any one of them that is not to his credit. But not one of them was the equal of Clara Barton. There was no tragedy about her experience, neither was there any consciousness of the ecstasy of a love completely possessing her. These affairs left her something of loneliness, but no memory of bitter grief or cruel disappointment. She could write, and did once write, some tender, sentimental verses about a sad parting, but the sadness did not break her heart, nor permanently cloud that of any of her lovers. The time came when all this was changed. She lived in Washington, amid a wide circle of friends, among them men of every station in life. No longer was she possessed of ambition beyond that of any man of her age and acquaintance. There were men whom she knew, and men whom she liked, who had ambitions equal to her own, and ideals with which her own had much in common. During the Civil War, she might have chosen any one of scores of grateful men as her husband. But she seems hardly to have given matrimony a thought in those years. After she became famous, she was less readily accessible to any multitude of lovers, but at least one man, to whom she had been kind, sought to reward her with his heart and hand, and after she had returned from Europe, at least one man whom she met abroad pressed upon her his ardent and unrewarded affections. If she had married any one, she would have married an American. 
no offer of matrimony from a man not of her own land would seem to have made any appeal to her this offer of marriage she regarded rather with amusement than with serious consideration it was honorable but in her judgment most unsuitable and she refused with a smile not the smile of contempt but of good humor and healthy merriment among other friends in middle life there were two whom she would seem to have considered in the aspect of possible lovers in the days during and following the civil war she came to know intimately an american professor of wide repute who at that time was pursuing extended researches in washington he was a widower of about her own age a profound scholar and he became a dear and trusted friend for several months their paths were thrown together and for a time they boarded at the same table she was interested not only in his work but in himself the ardor and enthusiasm which which he worked impressed her like herself he was little bound by precedent and was engaged in a task which he confidently believed would increase the sum of human learning there was something in a task of this character that made a direct appeal to clara barton much as she prized any kind of useful knowledge she especially admired the spirit of the pioneer and honored the man who blazed new paths and widened the horizons of learning such a man was this friend of hers he read to her in many evenings the results of his investigation and she shared his enthusiasm for his task her two nephews bernard and sam then in washington were wont to poke quiet fun at him and to joke their aunt about the possibility of his becoming an uncle of theirs and swamping the family with his knowledge of subjects which the boys cared little about she took their raillery in good part but one day when she thought it had gone a little too far she reproved her nephews and made a spirited defense of the professor she said you need not wonder that notwithstanding all your attempts to make fun of him i admire a man of his profound learning and high character her nephews then believed that their respect for each other had merged into affection but as the years went by and he and clara gradually lost sight of each other they came to think that they might have been mistaken that the two were good friends and nothing more so far as the author is aware there exists no evidence from which an answer can be had to the question of how much they really cared for each other or if they cared why they did not marry the author has his own conjecture and it is only a conjecture but it is this both he and she were at that time at the beginnings of a great work how long either one would need to continue to labor and sacrifice before success was won neither could determine the last and in some respects the most interesting 
as certainly the most distinguished among clara barton's matrimonial possibilities came to her late in life during the civil war she became acquainted with a man who even then was held in high regard and was attracting the attention of his own state and to some extent of the nation rising largely by his own exertions to a position of eminence he became one of the leading men of the generation through all the years when she was pursuing her war relief work with scant appropriation for postage he cheerfully loaned her his frank and was her friend through many long years they knew each other and always held each other in esteem he was in washington and so was she and there was little need of interchange of letters between them nor is there in the letters that are preserved any indication of personal affection those letters grew out of particular events when one or the other of them was away from washington and for the most part they had no significance as indicating the extent to which they may have cared for each other but there came a time when his work and her work brought them into close and more constant relations they were both at the zenith of their respective careers at that time he was a widower both were free and they could have married without the sacrifice of any important interest the home which they might have established would have been a congenial one at that time clara barton took a brief vacation and went to oxford where she prepared a new wardrobe including a white satin dress to her niece mamie she confided that an occasion of unusual significance was in prospect and that more would be known of it later just at this time this distinguished statesman died his death was a great shock to clara barton she made no public lamentation she never hinted even to those who were nearest to her that her grief was other than that which she might properly feel for an honored friend of many years her nieces believed that his death prevented their marriage her nephew stephen says their friendship was long and intimate and it would not have been strange if they had cared for each other in many respects their lives would have been well adapted to each other if their regard for each other ever expressed itself in terms of love or approached the prospect of marriage i do not know it it may have seemed to either or both of them a pleasant possibility but they were mature people each with a great work to do and if his death cut short what was growing from friendship into love i do not know it such a feeling either one of them might very worthily have held toward the other i know that she held him as a dear and trusted and honored friend and he esteemed her likewise if clara barton loved this able and good man she bore her disappointment as she was accustomed to bear her disappointments in self-restrained and dignified silence her silence shall remain unbroken if they loved 
it was a love worthy of them both. If they were good friends, and only good friends, it was a friendship honorable to both. So far as the author has been able to learn from those who were closest to Clara Barton during her lifetime, and so far as it is disclosed by her diary and letters, this is all there is to be known concerning the love affairs of Clara Barton. End of chapter 18, part 1